Welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic and humanistic conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, get an interesting conversation for you to listen to. I'm your host, Adam Reeks, and it's time to meet our guests. Welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast, impromptu edition. This is episode number six, and we have a contender for greatest spotlight chaser, as opposed to Gamma. We have, once again, Dr. Dave Hawkes. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on again. <laughs> Pleasure. And in a completely different country, we have Atheist Mel. Where are you? Hi there. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I, I decided after the first podcast, where I sounded a little bit robotic, that I would just, you know, fly around the world. And that was only made payable by a generous herd mentality donation, was it not? (laughs) Absolutely. That's the only reason I'm here right now. Excellent. I'm here, I'm in Malaysia right now, um, attending uh, the International Aid Society Conference. So it's very applicable, very topical. Yeah, well, after the other episode recently with the the science edition, we had plenty of questions, actually. And I I did ask Dr. Hawkes whether or not he'd been in touch with you. And he said, you're you're having a look over some paperwork. It's been a while. You may not have had a chance, though. Yeah, (laughs) Um, the the Wi-Fi in Canada is, you know... Not excellent, but I did manage to download his paper, and I've been taking a look at it. We were we were starting to discuss his uh, vaccination paper that was was brought up, I think, in that podcast. Mm. So yeah. So because there's been heaps and heaps of interest in it, we'll just kind of I think jump straight into the crux of it. We won't we probably won't talk too much about religion, although there is just one quick question on that coming up. But there's been a few people sending in messages on Twitter to put to you and credit to the questioners we're due we've got we'll get the religious question out of the way that's probably the burning one and this came in from at atrium atheist how has the church impacted the spread of aids in africa okay so there's we acknowledge there's a pretty simple solution there but what's also being done on your side of the fence to combat aids um i I guess if i could just take this opportunity to say that um just to just to clarify for all the listeners hiv is a virus that infects people AIDS is a syndrome, which is a classification of a number of symptoms which are a result of generally long-term infection with the HIV virus. So when we're talking about spreading infection, you're actually talking about the virus. When you're talking about AIDS, that can often be a result of a lack of antiviral medication as well. So they are absolutely connected, but you're actually looking at slightly different uh, things. Okay, so what causes somebody who suffers from... HIV and then progressively into AIDS, what is usually the final blow? Um, I I think Mel, as an immunologist, could probably have a better (laughs) go at that. Yeah, absolutely. So like you just said, um, when we're talking about HIV, what we actually mean is the virus itself and, and, you know, the viral infection. Um, AIDS itself is an acronym which stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. And what that's identified as, it sort of varies depending on the country and depending on, you know, the the medical system. But typically what we define that as, as a drop in CD4 count. So CD4 cells are the immune cells of the body. And when HIV infects the body, it tends to knock out the CD4 count or CD4 cells just because that's the cell type it preferentially infects. So over time, as individuals progress to disease, their CD4 counts will drop. And typically, once they drop between maybe 200 to 350, depending on what your definition is, that's when we would consider a patient to have the clinical AIDS syndrome, which is defined by the CD4 count, but also by other sort of similar issues at the same time that might may come up. So that's when 
the immune system has basically been completely knocked out, and that's sort of the end stage of, of the infection is when you reach that low CD4 count. Wow. Dr. Hawks, <laughs> do you have anything to add to that? Uh, no, I mean, I, I've sort of, I, I was in the HIV, HIV field for five years, and, I, and certainly the, the definition of AIDS changed a number of times, and that's why I think it's always worth... A lot of people there are, in fact, AIDS denialists. That's how I actually got into science activism that say, well, you can have AIDS one day and then not have AIDS the next day because of, you know, the, these criteria. And technically, that's correct. It, it, HIV, it is, yeah. That's true. And, and so HIV is a virus. Once you've got a HIV infection, there's essentially, as far as I know, one, maybe two cases where it's people have actually got rid of it. And these have been in some absolutely astonishingly, incredibly invasive situations that don't really uh, offer any long-term. But I guess to go back to your question, uh, the the Catholic Church, and I, I think this is the one that I'm certainly most familiar with, disapproves of, of condom use. They've been this way and, and they reiterated in terms of AIDS during John Paul II and it's been continue on since then. Um, there's not much that can be done and I guess the, the difference is people... And again, I'm not a public health person, so I don't know exactly what the situation is on the ground. But when people are faced with a choice of either obey a religion, which is your community, it is your lifeblood, it is the, the, the people you most respect, or don't do that, but maybe save yourself from dying, but put yourself through eternal damnation. If that was the position I was in, I, I would find it very difficult. All right, Mel, one quick thought on the religious side of things yeah for sure um and it's it's just it's just like like dave said there it's um it was basically the pope that had condemned the use of condoms even in the case where you know high transmission rates especially in sub-saharan africa are an issue and considering the fact that there a lot of those countries are very strong catholic-based countries so um i mean you can imagine there probably was a detrimental effect and i'm, I'm sure that people were infected because of that but it's one of those things where it's going to be almost impossible to really know what the actual impact of that was because there's there's so many other issues surrounding condom use. It's not going to be just the fact that the Pope doesn't like condoms, that people aren't using them. There's there's many reasons that interact. Okay, well, let's move away from that then and, and sort of segue into the next topic. But let's stop halfway at circumcision. What are the myths here? Where's the truth? <laughs> um, anyone who follows me on Twitter probably knows that I... I've had more than one discussion about HIV and circumcision. Um, and it's, it's really, it's a very interesting topic. And the, the basics of it are that we know now, it's, it's been shown in several studies that um, circumcision in adult males is roughly 60 to 70% effective in reducing their odds of becoming infected through heterosexual contact. And I mean, that's, it's pretty much an established case now. We have enough evidence that we can say that that's, you know, an established link, but a lot of people don't, I don't know if they don't want to believe it or if they think it's going to have some sort of an impact on infant circumcision, but it's really a very contentious issue, especially among what I found is the atheist community who, of course, are trying to move away from any of these sort of barbaric seeming religious beliefs. And it's, it's become a very hot topic issue in the field and, you know, in the general public as well. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the circumcision, um, I've, I've sort of been keeping a bit of a track of it and I, I agree with Mel. I think that that 
the the point that I would like to make is that there is also a risk with circumcision, of course, with as with any medical procedure, but it is it is quite low when done with uh, proper, you know, obviously in a, a clinical setting. I guess the thing is, I, I completely agree with one hundred percent, but circumcision is still less effective than condoms, and I guess this this is one of those things. It's if you have widespread condom use and you have people that are able to, which which in Australia is certainly the case, the overwhelming majority of people are able to negotiate safe sex practices, then, you know, circumcision is not going to make a big deal. If you're looking about sub-Saharan Africa or one of, one of the big areas of the growth of, of, of HIV infection is uh, South America, then, then you're looking at a different set of parameters. And, and with all those things, it's always context. I mean, I don't think the science is particularly in question now, but I think that the context really, you know, is, is what makes whether or not it's a worthwhile procedure. Another myth-busting question, if I may. We've got Jimmy Salford, and he's tweeted in, and it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, and I do like it, and for that reason I've... I'm going to read it to you guys. If AIDS came from monkeys, how come we've still got monkeys? <laughs> okay, so uh, we look at the genetic drift associated with HIV, which is human immunodeficiency virus, compared to SIV, which is simian immunodeficiency virus. And we look at the, the change, and I, I spoke in the last podcast about mutation rate, and we look at these things over time, and around, it was about 100 years ago that we actually got the, the difference, the, the segregation between SIV and HIV. Uh, interestingly, and one of the things that's actually held up a lot of the work with, with HIV and developing a vaccine is the fact that SIV can't infect humans and HIV can't infect simians, as far as I'm aware. So they're actually, they've speciated, they can't sort of infect the same host but and it was about a hundred years ago so hopefully that answers the question <laughs> now this one's a trick question uh, so you've got to be on your toes for this one this and i'm not convinced that it's uh, even a real question but i'm prepared to be blown away it came from reverend howard first he's written in rehiv do you think lethal mutagenesis e.g with ambiguous pairing nucleoside analogs is viable for extinguishing hiv that's actually not even a trick question believe it or not that's legitimate i'm look i'm blown away by a listener (laughs) it happens every time so in this and i'll probably defer to to dr hawks on this one um, but my basic understanding of lethal mutagenesis is, is the idea that HIV itself is so easily mutable that can we find a way to sort of drive it to mutate to such a high rate that it's no longer infectious? So that's kind of the, the basis is can we, can we just mutate it so badly that it's, it's not going to cause an issue anymore? And that's kind of where my knowledge on that topic ends, <laughs> but that is a real thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, well. Your knowledge is a bit ahead of mine. As I said, I've sort of I, I worked on HIV, and I've sort of I, I've moved sort of peripherally with my my virus work. So I'm familiar with the concept, but not the details in terms of essentially driving the mutation rate. And uh, it's with HIV, it does have some different systems to mammalian cells, so human cells. So you can actually target this sort of thing to a HIV genome, which is why we can also come up with anti-HIV drugs. The issue, as with all of these things, is that uh, HIV is really good at working out how to outsmart drugs through its uh, yeah. 
again, it's it's fast mutation rate. So it's certainly a possibility. And the, and the thing that they've had most success with actually treating HIV is through actually not targeting one specific site. It's through targeting many things at the same time so that it, essentially you can't have one mutation cause an escape from drug treatment. All right. This is going to be another one of those episodes where I've got to listen back five times to get it. <laughs> So in, in your respective fields, would there be uh, any point at which you cross over? Do you ever think? Would you ever run into to each Is the community that small that you'd run into each other at a conference no, one day? I, I highly doubt it. But the HIV field is absolutely massive. And just to kind of put a, a number on that, I'm, I'm here at the International AIDS Conference right now. And I think every year this conference hosts between ten and 30,000 people who are involved in the research. And that's just people who are at the conference. So... You know, there's basic scientists and epidemiologists and clinicians, and and this is just one conference. So the the field is absolutely astoundingly huge, and it's worldwide. So, I mean, I'd love to run into you sometime, but <laughs> I think that if I can't alone, that's too oh, likely. Well, you'd have to get an invite first, I would think. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing was, I was actually at that conference when it was in Sydney a number of years ago. Um, so, it, but again, it's like I'm a virologist. I have a very rudimentary understanding of immunology. I know very, very basic information because as you become more and more specialised, you you can't have that sort of breadth of, of knowledge that you may be able to have as an undergrad or even as a student. And so you do become, I, th- I think the old phrase is, as you know, more and more about less and less until you know absolutely everything about absolutely nothing and uh i think i'm on that pathway somehow okay so what are the most promising treatments and okay we've already discussed condoms that's an easy fix but in the meantime what is the single thing that stuck out at the conference to you mel um so the conference has actually been it's it's been very interesting it's it's only day one right now but um the last two days i've been attending a symposium that they call the towards a cure symposium so recently with um, some of the patients in Europe and that baby in Mississippi who they say was functionally cured of HIV, a lot of the research now has been moved very quickly towards cure research. So what can we do for patients who are already infected to actually try to eradicate the virus from their body, which is something that we've thought about but haven't really had any idea of how to approach it because it's such a complicated question. Hmm, I've read about that study and I read it with scepticism because my eyes glazed over when I saw it was a sample size of one. <laughs> so it was effectively yeah. a miracle. It was effectively a miracle. And that's and that's a very good point. And and that's something I was hoping we'd ha- have a chance to bring up is you know some of the terminology that we're talking about here. So um, when we say functional cure, we don't mean cure. It's 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 it sounds very ambiguous, and it is very ambiguous, and it's something that the media in particular loves to just grab hold of and take Cosmic off consciousness. And- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, it's it's something that I think, and it, it came up in the symposium as well, that we may need to be looking at this terminology. So when we're talking about a cure for HIV, we at this point kind of break it off into two groups where it could either be a sterilizing cure or a functional cure. The sterilizing cure is what will be defined as complete eradication of HIV from the body. So it's I thought we were talking thing. about the people. That then, oh, thank goodness, I'm very relieved. <laughs> <laughs> no, not of the people. We're not sending them to the moon. They're staying on Earth, and we're going to try to cure them. Um, but the sterilizing cure would be essentially completely eliminating the virus from the body, which is something that we have not been able to achieve to this point, and I think is going to be a, a bit of a challenge. There was that patient in Berlin who had cancer that at this point we haven't been able to, um, or, or they haven't been able to find any any evidence of the virus, but we're still a little bit 
skeptical about really calling that a sterilizing cure. And on the other hand, then we have the functional cure, which is what happened with the the baby in Mississippi, which is um, a less stringent definition whereby the goal of that type of cure, cure in air quotes, would be to bring the patient to a point where they no longer need to take the antiretroviral therapy so they can be off of treatment and still be infected with the virus, but control it to a point where it's essentially undetectable. So it would still be there in in the reservoirs and in various cell types in the body, but not actually producing any side effects or any disease progression. And this sort of treatment's always 15 years away, isn't it? Well, it, you know, it, it, it really depends. I mean, the, the HIV, the HIV baby, the Mississippi baby, was certainly a specific case. And that's that sort of approach that they took is not going to be widely applicable to everyone because, you know, you need to know really quickly after infection that someone was infected for that to actually be useful. Mm, It was a case of days, wasn't it? Yes, it was actually hours. It was within 30 hours of birth. They put her on a really, really high dose, I think three drug regimen. And they think that that was the reason why they were able to prevent the infection from really taking hold is kind of the basics of that case. So that that's really not, you know, it's, it's not going to be plausible. And most people who don't even know they're infected for months or, or years after it happens. So I think one of the things that I've found really interesting is actually from a group that I was working with, uh, well, working with when I was doing my PhD, you talk about the virus can hide. It's one of its greatest skills. It hides in a number of cells, but macrophages is one of them. And one of the one of the publications or, or one of the things they were talking about um, at the Department of Immunology at Monash University in um, Melbourne was that you can actually make the virus come out of hiding using chemotherapy drugs. So you've got a drug that's already approved. It's already something that people know how it works. And you can use that to trick the cells so that they actually come out of the, the virus comes out of hiding. Once the virus is out of hiding, it's a lot easier to uh, to attack it and to use other other drugs. So I think that one of the one of the pathways we can actually go down in is to use drugs that already prove that we already understand, and perhaps instead of targeting the virus, target certain things about the cell that would make the virus reveal itself. That process sounds very first world. It doesn't sound like a simple procedure to deploy into sub-Saharan Africa. No, you're, this, this is treatment. And I guess the thing is, there's a big difference between treatment and prevention. I think that treatment is always going to be, well, at least for the 10, 15 years you're talking about, it's going to be something that is first world and is intensive. Whereas, I mean, when you're talking about prevention, when, when babies are born in, in Africa... And again, this is a couple of years old. They, the mother is given nevarapine, which is a, an antiviral at this stage of birth, and that actually prevents transmission from the mother to the child. I think it's 60 or 70% of the time. Um, by... Sorry, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but it's even higher than that. I think if it's, if it's done appropriately, it can be 95% or higher, which is great if it actually is done on time. Yeah, well, that sounds like a great statistic as well, but how many births are there where there's not a lot of blood and mess? This is during a normal vaginal birth. If you give the drug at that point, you can still uh, re- reduce the, the transmission. Then there's also other things like stuff that I found fascinating. If a baby is breastfed exclusively or bottle fed exclusively, the chances of actually getting HIV are, are much lower from their mother than if they're mixed because the, the bottle feeding is more harsh, so it can open up small cuts within the, the lining of the gastrointestinal system, mm. which when combined with breast milk gives you a higher rate of HIV. So all of these things, and, and there's a whole variety of, 
of sex practices that can increase the transmission of HIV that I don't think we need to go into, that our prevention, which don't require any great leaps in technology, they just require really intelligent management. It's, it's like using a pencil in space. Yes. <laughs> I found that fascinating, where the way you drew the analogy, where you either choose one or the other, either breast milk or bottled milk, because breast milk comes, brings with it its own benefits for the immune system for the child as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there's maternal antibodies transfer off and they last up on average to about six months post um, post birth and and obviously the if you're in a third world country you you can get whatever you you can to help you survive that sort of initial period where you're quite vulnerable to a whole variety of conditions but again in a third world country your mother may not be getting enough nutrition to actually supply breast milk all the time and so doing doing that sort of way up that you know, you might you might just sort of educate people to continue with breast milk as much as they can, but the point at which they can't, then just do a complete switch over and and just explain to them. And it's really difficult to do that explanation, but it's a lot easier than to give a positive diagnosis. So, Mel, what's on the cards for you at the conference? Do you have a specific role, and are you presenting? Eve? Um, I actually I presented a, a poster at the pre-conference symposium, and now I'm just here enjoying, listening, trying to absorb some sort of new information. Um, With a hangover. Net, well, <laughs> see how that goes. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's good. This is It's a little bit different than other conferences I've been to because it is such a huge conference, which is good on one hand because there's a lot of different topics and a lot of very diverse topics. And it gives you a really good chance to network with people too. So, you know, you, you do see the same people coming back again and again to the same conferences. So it's nice to have that opportunity in and amongst learning all the new breaking news in, in HIV and in AIDS research. So, yeah. A little bit more about your job, Mel. Do you work in a lab at, in, back in Canada? I do, yeah. I'm, um, so I'm technically a PhD student, but the way our university and I suspect a lot of science-based universities run their program is it's very much research-focused and not so much course-based. So I've taken a few courses, but now I'm, I'm basically just in the lab doing research on a daily basis. And that's kind of, and well, and analyzing the data and writing the papers and all that fun stuff too. But it's, it's very much, very heavily lab-based, research-based sort of work that I do now. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything you'd like to plug? I, I guess for me, uh, if anyone out there is listening, there's been an increase, particularly, well, I'm more familiar with Australia, of, of young gay men getting HIV because it's now no longer seen as a death sentence. It's not necessarily a death sense, sentence. People are living their lives. But while these drugs are effective, there are some pretty catastrophic side effects some of the time um, when you're weighing that up with death it, it certainly is a benefit when you're weighing that up with living a healthy lifestyle through engaging in safe sex practices it's not so great so i would just encourage anyone who is questioning it's still a disease that will certainly shorten your lifespan so please adopt safe sex practices um, use clean needles if that's what you're into it's much easier to avoid it than to treat it. It seems we've come a long way further treating people's life expectancy on, say, HIV AIDS as, say, something like the herpes simplex virus, which lives in your brain's juices and pops out from time to time, and that's something that affects a large percentage of the population as well. Well, I mean, no? I can comment, yeah. it's. I mean, it's difficult. I mean, whenever we're talking about medical research, there's only so much funding to do research. So, of course you know, the funding agencies are, are going to concentrate their funding on what they deem to be the most important research. 
And in the case of something like herpes, it's certainly, you know, it's a debilitating infection and it, it can be, it's a life, lifelong infection. But like you said, it's not life-threatening. It's, it's more of sort of an annoyance. At the same time, of course, if you have an active you know, genital herpes infection, that leaves you open and more susceptible to other infections as well, such as HIV. So from that angle, it is still an important avenue of research. But sort of in the grand scheme, I mean, we're looking at things trying to put save focus- lives, prioritizing exactly. by saying exactly. Lives. And and herpes is is still an interesting infection, and there's a lot of interesting research going on. But in the grand scheme of of funding, I mean, things like HIV, malaria, cancer, the really big killers in the world are the ones that are are more likely to receive the funding to do sort of really large-scale research. In Australia, we've also, uh, in the last few years, you you talk about cancer and diabetes, all those things. The other thing that Australian research has actually turned its focus towards is mental health and uh, sort of neuronal uh, conditions, things like Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, and then obviously anxiety things, because these are, with an aging population, people are living longer. Uh, you look about, you know, we're talking about HIV and AIDS, the, the depression and also dementia that's associated with that. These are, these are things that people may not be aware of, but these are actually where a lot of our research is moving towards because, you know, you look about anxiety, you talk about people who have high levels of anxiety and you're talking about 20, 40, even more of percent of the population versus HIV, which in Australia, in Victoria, we've like four and a half million people. I think we have 100 or 200 new infections a year. And when you put it into that kind of context, then maybe, you know, mental health is something that is is going to be the next the next stage of our um, where our funds are going. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Mel, have you got anything you'd like to add or promote, plug? Uh, sure. I'll just, I'll just add a final thought on HIV since that's sort of the topic of our discussion here. Mm-hmm. Um, just to echo the sentiments of, of Dr. Hawks before, and I mean, you look at obviously the, the most heaviest hit areas of sub-Saharan Africa, everyone knows about HIV there and you can, you can spend time there and talk to people and everyone knows about it. Everyone knows how it's transmitted. They know how to protect themselves. It's, the awareness is really quite high when you compare that to a place like Canada or I suspect other first world nations that don't really have the same level of problem. People probably know on some sort of cursory level what HIV is and how it spreads, but it's, it's not really at the forefront of your mind. You're not thinking about, you know, am I at risk of being infected? And that's, that's sort of where the problem is and why it's becoming an issue in these countries now is that people just don't really think about it. So it's, it's kind of a fine balancing act where we need to, you know, increase the awareness and the education in some of these countries where it's becoming a problem, but people don't think about it. And then we also need to look back to places like Kenya and sub-Saharan Africa where people are aware, but it's, it's almost gotten to the point where it's, it's been drilled into them so much that it's not really a big problem anymore, if that, if that makes sense. Like it's, it's almost become desensitizing by being bombarded with it day in and day out. So it's, it's really, I think it's, it's important to have a fine balance between getting the appropriate education and awareness out there, but then finding a way to sustain it so that it doesn't become desensitizing to people over time. Being fresh and forefront in people's minds is, is the catch. Yeah, it's always the thing. It's exactly the same thing that I, uh, and it's what attracted me to vaccination. You, you're talking about something which is vaccinating for a disease that people may not have seen and their parents may not have seen. And it slips out of your mind. But, you know, measles, if it gets into a population that's unvaccinated, will actually infect about 86% of people and one in a 1,000 people will get, you know, encephalitis, so inflammation of the brain. 
this is sort of disappearing because I, I didn't get measles. A lot of people in my generation sort of didn't really get it. And the next generation, even more, you know, better immunizations don't have it. So it's it's a really difficult balance. Well, that's the herd immunity effect, is it not? It is, absolutely. If, if, if you've got... And I'll just clarify with herd immunity because of how it relates to HIV. HIV attacks your immune system. If you've got HIV, there's certain vaccines you can't get because they, you know, your your body is weakened. But and if you're on chemotherapy, all those different things, you can't get vaccinated, but you can get the disease, and it can be it's a much higher rate of lethality. So if everybody around you, everybody you come in contact, everybody who touches the doorknob that you'll touch, is vaccinated then it reduces the chance of any of those diseases getting a hold in the community, which forms this protective cocoon. It's, you know, in public health, it's known as cocooning. Um, and that sort of helps reduce that. I mean, with HIV, obviously, you can cocoon somebody by wearing a condom or, or doing some other sort of barrier method. It's just a lot simpler and you have a lot more direct control. So what's the magic number? It varies from virus to virus. I think with measles is hugely infectious. Um, it just, it's astonishingly infectious. And so it's, uh, I think it's in the, the mid nineties. Um, again, just something else with HIV in Australia, HIV only infects about 1% of IV drug users, whereas hepatitis C, it's nearly 90%, which just shows you HIV is not actually that good a virus at infecting people. It's very fragile. Yeah, it's, it's very that's fragile. It's not transmissible by mosquitoes. Yeah, it's um, absolutely. And it's got a lipid membrane, which is what I spent five years investigating. My, my actual project was looking at the proteins from the cell, the human cell that go into the HIV that are essential, because we figured if we can actually target the cell proteins the virus needs the virus can't mutate them and so that was where my work came from just as an as an aside well that's excellent i understood that (laughs) (laughs) well done (laughs) all right guys we might wrap it up there i'll let you get back to um, your beakers and test tubes and saving the world thank you very much for coming on the herd mentality it's always a pleasure having you on even though i have spoken to you previously you'd be most welcome to come back on again in the future i'll see you on twitter excellent and maybe as long as i'm in a country with a good wireless connection apparently (laughs) abc anywhere but canada (laughs) (laughs) come on all right guys thanks a lot thanks for having me Welcome to the Herd Mentality bonus material. It costs you absolutely nothing. It's going to be fairly epic, I think, because this is not, this is the gift that keeps on giving. This is a gentleman by the name of, I won't give away your name. Would you like to give us your Twitter handle? Uh, It's religious tea. As in? Just one tea, not as in the cultural British cup of tea. No, just one tea. Sad face. So religious tea, <laughs> tell us why you attracted my attention. Well, I, I assume it's because uh, currently I'm trying to join 12 religions over 12 months. Boom! Um, and how's that going for you? How's the apostasy thing treating you? <laughs> Look, luckily, I've not been, um, I'm, I'm not a Muslim yet. That's next month. Okay, so um, are, you, are we expecting you to make it to month five? <laughs> well, we can only hope. I'm, I'm certainly hoping to. Well, so Maybe. am I. I've got money riding on this. Yeah. <laughs> so all right so we we bumped into each other probably what a couple of hours two or three uh, two hours ago i think on twitter and look at that we're already on we're already 
we're already talking. It'll be it'll be dates next, and then I mean I, I don't know if any of us can give birth, but it, it's, it's well I'm prepared to take one for the team. I mean they're doing marvelous <laughs> things with science nowadays. <laughs> it was if, love if at one first. One of us isn't pregnant by the end of the day. I'll be disappointed. <laughs> So, religious tea, you've, you're doing something that I think is most unusual, very odd, and very admirable. So, you're doing, what, 12 religions in 12 months. This is like the Jenny Craig of stupid, isn't it? No, I don't think so. I think it's, um, it's relatively fun and it's, it's meant kind of tongue in cheek. It's not, I mean, I'm not going to be brilliant at it. I'm probably not the best person to do this. But I'm the one who thought of it first, so I'll do it first. Well, <laughs> you know, good for you. Take credit for it, sir. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so have you, have you planned it out? Is it like one of those advent calendars that you get at Christmas, and uh, on each different day you pop out a chocolate and go, "Okay, today I'm going to be a Buddhist." It was. I kind of picked six or seven that I thought I knew of, and then uh, other friends of mine who knew I was doing it kind of um, also put forward some religion. So uh, a friend of mine um, used to. For some reason, practice Wicca. I'm not sure why. She went through a kind of, a lot of people went through a teenage angst stage. She went through a, I'm going to be a witch stage. And so we're going to do that for a month, maybe in, maybe in about four months or something. I think I'm going to have a go at being a Wicca. Bravo. And, uh, I mean, a Wicca to me, up until you explained that, I thought that was some sort of chair. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, um, Wicker both being a chair, and that would be an, a, a good month as well, if I could just be a chair for a month. Yeah, all right. Well, look, this all sounds... <laughs> I am absolutely fascinated with this. So, we'll just have a touch briefly upon how you've gone for the first three months. So, what was your first religion? Um, being being raised in a kind of um, Christian country. Not a Christian family or anything like that, but a Christian country. I thought I'd go with that one first. And it's the, it's the one I knew probably most about, in the hope that um, I could kind of hit the ground running. In four weeks, how convinced did you become? Um, probably less convinced. Oh, really? Strangely, yeah. I've, I've not, not, with my, not with myself so much, but with other, other people. I'm not sure that a lot of people really knew what Christianity was. They all seem to have their own kind of interpretation of it which is almost just be nice to others and i don't know why that's a religion i think it's <laughs> being nice to other people what i want to do is just really briefly touch on these um these three at the beginning and and kind of wrap it because i think you're just going to be awesome bonus material once a month have you on and find out we'll, we'll, we'll spend some more time elaborating on it next time i have a chat with you but pray tell what was religion two? Religion two was him. I was I was a Hindu. I was a Hindu for a month. And what was involved with being a Hindu? Was there a little bit of cow worship? Uh, strangely, um, they worship many many animals. Um, a cow not particularly being one of them, just one of many. So, um, I mean, I I'd certainly tipped a hat to a cow um, when I passed one in the countryside and thought you're you're my friend and those kind of things. Mainly, it involved pain. It involved a lot of agony. Um, I tried yoga. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> it was it was traumatic. I don't understand why people want to do that. I mean, some people do this just for fun, not even as a, a religious necessity. I it it was the most probably relaxing way of permanently disabling myself I've ever been through. I can only assume that Stephen Hawking was an avid yoga fan before. <laughs> <went a bit. laughs> Excellent. I like that one. Good. All right. That'll make the cut. (laughs) All right. So how seriously are you taking it? And I know you've got the Muslim tradition coming up next month and we're all eager to see what happens there. But how seriously are you taking this? Not so much. I I think I'll try to stick to um, kind of philosophy of it more than more than anything and try and throw as much um, kind of cultural 
and happenings as as I could. So with with Hinduism, I, I built a little shrine, and uh, I prayed and offered to it um, every day. And I went to yoga only once because I couldn't walk for the rest of the month. Um, <laughs> so you, Christianity. You, know, you haven't went, been. You've only been one thirtieth respectful towards the religion. That, that's how I view. Probably. It. I did. I did some astronomy as well. Astronomy or astrology? Um, ast- oh. uh, astrology. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. <laughs> good for, for a second there, I thought you said something credible. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was good. I, I I went to the same place um for my for my uh, star sign uh, readings every day. And one day it said um trust in your friends they will be the one who gets uh, who gets you through these difficult times. And then the exact the next day the exact same paper said trust no one. Do not trust anyone. You are on your own. And I thought Jesus what what's happened? What's no, gone think, wrong in this in these last 24 hours? <laughs> must have a schizophrenic writing the, the paper. <laughs> Just, or, something, or, or many, many different writers who say, I'll, I'll not read what the person said yesterday. Probably probably no point. They couldn't have said anything interesting anyway. I so, um, yeah. Barry's called in sick for Wednesday. Susie, can you step up? <laughs> oh. Do you need to read anything else? Probably not worth it, Susie. Just just keep going. Just yeah. whatever you've got written, yeah. just go for it. <laughs> head, head back down. Head back down. <laughs> so, okay, so we've covered off a little bit of yoga. I'm, I'm very excited to hear that. I'm, I know a little bit of yoga because I've met women. And right. <laughs> that, that's my sole source of knowledge. I met a woman once who was a, a yoga teacher. <clears throat> It's about all I've got to say, but it wasn't a very interesting experience. <laughs> it didn't stay with me, but I'm happy to talk about it at length. I mean, how long did you do it for? I never did it. She still Oh, doesn't. you just spoke? Yeah, and I'm, oh, just she talk- I'm just talking about meeting her. I mean, that's about as interesting as it got. Oh, that's that's pretty good. I mean, it's, was, it's she, was she found stretchy as she spoke to you? Was it- oh, I don't know. She was pretty handy at getting keys from out the back of the couch. Oh, that, that's that probably all. That's all relative, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Handy girlfriend <laughs> for someone, presumably. Exactly. But yeah. someone who's constantly dropping keys. So, bated breath, number three. Where are we now? I'm a Scientologist. A Scientologist? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Hang on. Let me just catch my breath. Yep. Yep, got it. <laughs> got it. So, Scientologist. What's involved in being a Scientologist? Because... What? The stuff I've read on the internet is so contradictory that mm. now I'm even believing that Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. So I don't know what to think anymore. <laughs> no, he's definitely not. Uh, it's it. I, 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 it's kind of almost in two parts. You have kind of the religious aspect that is run by complete lunatics, and then you have the kind of personal side of it, which is the Dianetics and um, almost almost kind of self healing um, psychologically. Um, which is all fairly harmless, if not quite pleasant in a kind of way. The, the idea is that you can, can retrace um, your memory to certain instances in your life, uh, whether they be good or bad, and you can take those emotions and refile them and also and almost kind of have them on tap, on demand, so you can go back and if someone, for instance, kicked you and you heard a car go past and also someone say something, uh, those things will be stored along with that negative emotion of being kicked. And you can go back, relive that whole thing, and not wipe it from your memory, but you can take it from what's called the reactive mind and put it in your analytical mind. So you've you've kind of come to terms with it, and it no longer holds any kind of um, any, any kind of hold over you. And I'm all for that, it seems. It's, it's as far as I can tell, nonsense, but it does no harm. <laughs> it's... 
Well, look, I, I must say I'm in awe of your open-mindedness going into this. I mean, the, the, the last thing I want is for you to regress and, and go over this phone call again and experience all these emotions again. I think that's entirely unnecessary, <laughs> but there are things that perhaps that could be beneficial to you at some point in the future. It's possible. Yeah. We never know. Well, I'll have to wait for a couple of years until I can come back to it. Although when I went to get audited on Saturday... And uh, the chap who had audited me was just kind of testing how good my memory was and stuff like that. And we went over what I'd had for dinner the night before. And I could barely remember. And I oh. felt like oh, like an idiot. <laughs> he was going, what what colour dish did you have? And I'm, I don't know. He says, can't you see a picture of it? I said, I use many dishes. Why am I supposed to know this? <laughs> I, did, I didn't know I was going to have to revise for this meeting. I, I don't give the dishes names. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was just... one of the many available dishes that I have um, in my cupboard. At, at your disposal. <laughs> so, well, that that's fascinating stuff. Um, I would like to know more. Are you keeping and you're keeping a blog, aren't you? That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, um, it's only a WordPress one. I'm not yeah. even at that stage yet. I'm trying to build myself up to it. Tell us where we can find it. Then can I do it so I sound really, really well informed as well? So if we just go. Oh, you can find it at uh, religioustourist.wordpress.com, and then I sound really clever. Yeah. Now, what I'm, clever going to, tricks. <laughs> what I'm going to do is edit out the bit where you stuffed it up three times and just that bit at the end, just to make you sound yeah. like a complete twat. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. it. I can't have my guests sounding more intelligent than me. That's not on. No, of course not. <laughs> now, I do have, uh, I do have a question. You see, you, you've, you've, you're a bit baffled about what's going to happen in the future. So you've, you've got three down. You've got, uh, you're going to be a Muslim next month. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, now, is that are we going calendar month here? Uh, no, I, I started on the. Um, I, I hope you'll know it's the sacred day of February the seventeenth, and I've had to. It's not really. It's, it was a day I pulled out my ass. But um, yeah, well, <laughs> I was prepared to I just, roll with it. Just to sound I just more wanted to worry you for a second. <laughs> Scientology took a little bit longer due to um, trying to get people into order to me and stuff like that, and. Um, I really no, want no, to. They, they, use a, they use a different calendar, don't they? You've got to be able to calculate pi to sixteen decimal they use, places. They use their own dictionary. Honestly, right. it's <laughs> it's impossible to communicate with these people. Um, so I've, I'm going to do Ramadan start, and I'm going to start Islam on the seventh of August. But then Ramadan starts on the ninth, and then uh, after that it'll be Buddhism. So it's it's fairly loose, but it's mainly around it's mainly around a month each. Okay, and are you open to suggestions for obscure religions? Uh, I've already I've already I've accidentally extended it. Uh, someone on Twitter said that um, he dared me to be a Jehovah's Witness over my birthday, which is um, which is in April. So as a kind of as I'm a bonus material on you, I thought I'd do a bonus um, religion of of being a Jehovah's Witness, knocking on people's door, and just generally bothering people, I suppose. Can you do me a big favour? I can try. I would like you to whip out your smart telephone, uh-huh. and when you do a little bit of door knocking and try and sell somebody a Bible, yeah. I'd just like you to record that clip and flick it through to me, and I'll put it in at the end of a podcast. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. So, uh, you're, you've got your whole year planned out. Pretty much, yeah. What are some of the more obscure religions? Like, are you gonna live in the style of religion that is extinct? I'd not thought of that. I tried, I tried to stick to ones that people would already kind of know of anyway, but maybe didn't, hadn't really known anything about. I mean, the, the reason kind of for all this, if, if nothing else, is to try and, try and extinguish any kind of all of my ignorances on religion um, as well. And it would be nice if other people learned something as well. I doubt it. 
but you know, it's it's nice to it's nice to think for a second that you might do something uh, at least slightly useful. But no, I'm not I'm not thought particular of any um, kind of extinct religions um, at this time. But again, no suggestions. I think you might have a, a decent crack at inventing your own religion because you're you'd be one of the one of the few people who has oh, certainly experienced a number of different traditions and experiences. Why not create your own religion? Well, there was there was there was two possible things. I'm, I'm writing this for um, for a book. Um, mm. eventually um, if someone wants to publish it and someone's listening now um, do, do get in touch <laughs> um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bother nobody listens to this <laughs> I'll I'll try um, the, the idea for a second book was uh, it was two things it was either to try and start my own religion or try and try and join other kind of faith healing and stuff like that you know all these Reiki and things like that all these pseudo nonsensical healing kind of medicines and then uh, see if I could start my own and see how easy it would be to get people to believe almost practically anything just by waving your hands and saying some kind of lingoy word and realizing um, somebody's colon uh, exactly <laughs> sorry chakra oh, yeah yeah <laughs> simple mistake anyone could make it <laughs> ever so better realign you realign your colon no one wants that my curtains are still a mess <laughs> Oh, golly gosh. All right, so you've got a, a big month up next month. So no pork for you, I'm guessing, no bacon. No pork, no bacon. I'm a vegetarian, so luckily that if that's that's already it's already done. Oh. Okay. Well, <laughs> you, you, you sound disappointed. I'm disappointed because there's no joke there. <laughs> I mean, I can go with it. We can we can re-edit this. Do you want to go again? Uh, okay, let's let's give it another <laughs> try shot. again. Um, so no pork then. Oh no. <laughs> oh dear well look religious tea i think everybody needs to follow you you are at religious tea like mr t but far cooler oh way cooler He's way rubbish. cooler on twitter tweet him a question tweet him uh tweet him an answer because he, he doesn't know all the he doesn't know all the answers listen probably i know need, pro- probably needs a bit of help by the time this goes to air people who are listening they, they might be able to tweet you in a couple of tips for avoiding bacon yeah hopefully apart from the fact that you're a vegetarian and were unlikely to hit it anyway most creative tweet in on how to avoid bacon wins a herd mentality biro there you go <laughs> what a price what an amazing what a price, price. <laughs> I'd like everybody to tweet you a message and just wish you all the very best for, for being a, a peaceful Muslim. Very peaceful. And very little... Are you going to cover up your lady friend? Um, I'd, have to, I'd have to get one first. Ooh, I mean, I, okay. I, Do you hear that, ladies? Doesn't eat bacon and enjoys women. Very well. I um, Thank you very much for coming on the show. I'll no, try and edit it to make us sound both far more intelligent than we truly are. I look forward to speaking with you next month and certainly hearing periodic hilarious updates about not having a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> keep keep us posted. You, you can be somebody's Twitter crush. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, again, reiterating my loneliness. <laughs> Just... It's what I do. It's what I do, says Adam as he sits in a large, empty room, crying, <laughs> stroking a cat. Crying into his virus. All right. Well, thank you very much for being my bonus material. We'll see you later. I can't wait. Thanks very much. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.